Thank you, Laura, very much for reading for us. Let's pray then as we sit for God's help. Our Father, we thank you today for the privilege of gathering as your people, and we ask you to open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word, encourage our hearts, and raise our gaze to glory, because we ask it for Jesus' namesake and for his glory. Amen. Well, on July the 20th, 1969, history was made as Apollo 11 landed on the moon, carrying the astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. They took with them what was called the Goodwill Disc, which had messages from 73 different countries, messages from this world to an unexplored universe. The silicon disc was left in a case on the moon's Sea of Twenty. Tranquility in July 1969. And the message on the disc from planet Earth contained a text from the Bible. I wonder what text you would have picked to send a message to the universe. The text they picked was our text this morning, Psalm 8. It is a great song, but the singer is not Frank Sinatra or a Michael Bublé but King David. And the inspiration for this song, Psalm 8, more than likely for David was a walk at night. The tone is one of adoration and amazement and awe, and it begins like a symphony with, a, with an opening movement like Beethoven's fifth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This song is a great song of praise to God. But the focus is not so much on God the Creator, but on God the Lord in capitals. You can see that in verse 1. Because the Lord in capitals is the very name of God. Not so much what He is as the Creator, but who He is. This is His personal name, Yahweh. The name that it was so holy that the scribes couldn't even pronounce it. The Lord there in capitals is the name the scribes puts in a coded formula. It is so holy it could not even be pronounced. The Lord is the name that God revealed in Exodus 34, revealed to Moses and to the nation of Israel. The God who is who He says He is, who will be who He will be, the self-defining, self-sufficient, promise-making, promise-keeping God. The Lord in capitals, verse 1, is our Lord in lowercase. In other words, we are under the lordship or the mastery of this covenant, faithful, promise-making, promise-keeping God. And David is marveling at the immense privilege of this. Look at the nature of his rule, then look at the scope of his rule. The nature of his rule is one of majesty. And in the original Hebrew, that word majesty conveys the sense of almost intimidating power. So in my thesaurus, alternative words for majesty or majestic include awe-inspiring, alarming or overwhelming, Dreadful or intimidating, breathtaking or stupefying, formidable, daunting, and terrifying. The nature of his rule and its scope, notice, 
while not contained as it was for the gods of the ancient world, not localized as if he's just ruling over the southern states of the United States of America. No, this is a God who in majesty is enthroned over all the world and the whole of the universe forever. He's glorious. And in Hebrew, thought, that word glorious or glory, contains the sense of being heavy. We use it in the same sense today. We speak of the political heavyweight, meaning he's got a lot of majesty or power, or the sporting heavyweight or the boxing heavyweight. It's another way of saying power. God is glorious, immovable, and heavy in his glory and majesty over the universe. And so in the Book of Common Prayer, there is a declaration that goes like this. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we lord and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Glory be to thee. Amen. This glory, says David, is on display in our universe. Well, the other day, we were in London uh, just a couple of uh, weeks ago. I took one of the children. We had to do some business over there, went for a few days, and I, I took uh, one of our children to the um, National Portrait Gallery just off Trafalgar Square. And if you go in, you go into the Impressionist room. We saw this amazing Impressionist painting of water lilies. It's an amazing uh, canvas, blue on green, but pink on white with the flowers. Um, an amazing creation as you stand there, moving up to see the strokes and then back to see the Impressionist painting. But there is no excuse for walking out of the art gallery thinking, I wonder who painted it. Because there at the bottom, in the right-hand corner of the frame, is the signature Monet. And it's like that for us in our world. We marvel at the creation. It's an amazing place to live. But there is no excuse for not ascribing glory to God the Creator because His fingerprints are all over His creation. And yet there is a surprise for us this morning. Because whilst the glory of God has been revealed in the universe, whilst it is clear that there is a God who is majestic and glorious and awesome and who deserves our obedience and praise, the surprise this morning is to see that only to certain people has this been revealed. And it leads us to our first of two points. Here's the first. The Lord's majestic glory and strength revealed only to the weakest, point number one. Because in verse two, something strange happens as we suddenly switch from the sky at night and the vast greatness of the cosmos to the maternity wards. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength. The baby here or the infant is the newborn in the nursery, in the crib. And both stand here as the picture of the ultimate weak, the ultimate dependent, the ultimate vulnerable in humanity. 
And if this was an all-age service or, uh, I don't know, VBS or something like that, I might now walk out and go down to nursery and then come back with a, a newborn infant, three weeks old, and I would stand here and I would show you the newborn infant. And we would marvel at how vulnerable, how weak, how dependent that baby would be. And then I would say to you, in verse 2, this is the picture. For the Lord's majestic strength is revealed somehow through a child as dependent as this. It's a really shocking point that it is out of the mouths of infants as weak, vulnerable, and dependent as that. It's going to be there that you see the strength and glory and majesty of God. It's an even more remarkable point as we move on in the psalm. It is through the mouth of the infants that the majestic power of God is revealed to silence the avenger and defeat the enemies of God. So here's the question. Where is it that you expect to see the majesty and the power and the strength of God on earth? Is it going to be in the Oval Office or the Kremlin? Is it on Capitol Hill or in the corporate offices in the city in Manhattan? Is it going to be on the oligarchs yachts or in the luxury of Beverly Hills or in the beauty of the great palaces of England? Where is it that you expect to see? Where is it that we will see the majestic power and strength of God to defeat his enemies? Because all the way through the story of Scripture, the power of God is revealed in the weakest place. The story begins with the story of the Hebrews as they were tyrannized by Pharaoh in Egypt, a weak and small people. And yet, through that weak, small people, the might of Pharaoh was overturned. Where was it that the power of God was seen but in King David's, that weak teenager taken to be king, yet with the power of God to defeat the mights of Goliath? Where is it that the power of God is seen in exile as Daniel and those teenage exiles stand firm against the mighty superpower of Babylon? But who wins by the end of the story but the people of God as the empire, as the king is converted. All the way through the story of Scripture, the power of God, the majesty of God, the strength of God to deal with and overturn the avenger, the enemy, is seen in the weakest possible place. So in Matthew 11, Jesus declares this, that I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. And in the Magnificat, as Mary announces with praise to God what God has promised to her, in Luke 2, he says this, He has shown might with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the conceit of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly and has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty. This is a very important theological point. 
because the temptation for the church in every generation of the people of God is to seek power and influence on earth in order to win culture and to establish itself with security. The temptation in every generation for the people of God is to try somehow and become powerful as we win the culture by doing a deal with the culture in order to win influence over the culture. But I can categorically tell you this morning that the true church of God on earth will always seem weak. It will always look insignificant. It will always appear to be vulnerable and defeated on earth but it is in the place of weakness and defeat that the power of God is seen. So Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 1.26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of noble birth. The Countess of Huntington was an amazing woman of God. She basically single-handedly funded Whitfield and Wesley together. Aren't you glad? Because it was Whitfield who really brought the gospel here to the United States of America. So the Countess of Huntington really funded those great missionary journeys around England and New England here in the United States of America. But in response to this verse, 1 Corinthians 1.26, not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many. She famously said, I was saved by an M. It doesn't say not any, It says, not many, a very humble woman who declared how grateful she was to God that there was an M in that text. Not many of you were rich. It doesn't say not any. She was so thankful to God for that one letter as she wrote to Wesley and Whitfield. But do you feel weak and helpless? Do you feel vulnerable? Can I just say that this feeling of weakness and helplessness is the place of strength. It is in the weakest place out of the mouth of the infant and the baby that God has ordained strength to defeat the avenger. There's our first point, and it's a shocking one. It is only, it is only in the weakest place that the majestic strength of God is displayed. Here's our second point, the Lord's majestic strength revealed through the man. Theodore Roosevelt was the 32nd president of the United States uh, from 1933 to 1945, and he was once asked, since he occupied such exalted office, how do you stay humble? His answer was simple. He said, I would go out onto the White House lawn and look up to the Milky Way and think about the galaxy, and then after contemplating the vastness of that, I would say, now I feel small enough and I can go to bed. 
In verse 3, it's as if David is going through a very similar experience as king. He is overwhelmed by the sheer vastness and magnificence of the sky at night. And it drives him to think about his fragility and smallness in the face of it. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? In our own little worlds, absorbed as we are with our own stuff, we become so self-obsessed. What is the answer to self-obsessed me in my own little world? Well, David says, go to Cape Canaveral, um, look through the telescope, um, talk to an astrophysicist, get on board the next Apollo mission to the moon, and then look down at the sheer scale of the cosmos, and then ponder the insignificance of you. Visible to the naked eye in our galaxy, in the Milky Way, are around 10,000 stars. But the real number of stars in the Milky Way is really between 100 to 400 billion. The Milky Way is just one galaxy in the universe. There's a further 170 billion galaxies in our universe, but it could be up to uh, 2 trillion. And as galaxies go, uh, the Milky Way, ours is a middleweight. The largest galaxy we know of is called IC 1101 and has over 100 trillion stars. And the sun would take 220 million years to travel around the Milky Way just once. It's way above our pay grade. The bigness of God and the smallness of man. And so it raises an inevitable question. What is man that you're mindful of him? And who are we that you should care for us? And the word man here denotes our fragility and mortality, our createdness. We are dwarfed by the immensity of the universe. But don't confuse smallness with insignificance. Because the God who is that big is intimately and intricately concerned with his people this small. What is man? That's the big question. It's actually the most important question in the world. Who are we and where have we come from? The biologist Richard Dawkins says, well, humanity is a, quote, happy chemical accident. Or if you go to Shakespeare, it's the story of an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. But both Dawkins and Shakespeare forget the most extraordinary truth that God is the creator who made us, that God is the covenant Lord who loves us, and that he has a plan for us, and that somehow we are at the hearts of the plan. No matter who you are or what you have done, no matter how weak you may be today, this is a God 
who loves you, who is for you, and whose eternal plan, if you trust him, will involve you. Verse 5, he crowns you. Made us a little lower than God, crowned with glory and majesty. You make man the ruler over the works of your hand. You've placed all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. In Genesis 1, humanity is part of the animal kingdom. We are animals, but we're VIP animals. We're special animals because we are given rule over the whole of the creation. In Genesis 1:28, God commanded that the human race should have dominion over all the earth. So verse 5 takes us to the doctrine of man, and it's glorious. The majestic glory of God is seen on earth now through the rule of a crowned man. Four quick things to notice about this rule. First, it's delegated. It's not intrinsic to me or absolute to me. It's given to me. Second, it is exalted, crowned with glory and honor. What's the highest honor in the world? Well, not a degree from Yale or an Oscar or even to become president of the United States. What is the greatest honor on earth? It is to be made in the image of God, to be crowned with his glory, to rule for him. Third, notice this rule is universal over the whole of creation. And fourth, notice this rule is absolutes. All things under our feet. Very quickly to pause on this. What it means is that humanity has a God-given dignity. Peter Singer from Princeton University speaks of speciesism. That is, we're no different to the animals, and we have no right to rule over them. But he's wrong, because God created us in his image to exercise dominion over the world. And this means that our worth doesn't come from our financial fortune, from our Facebook connections, uh, from our economic potential or academic career. It means that our worth comes from the fact we are created in the image of God, which is the foundation for ethics, which is why abortion and murder and euthanasia and embryo research are wrong. And why, if we're struggling with low self-esteem, or depression, of course there are psychological reasons for that, but surely the answer theologically is to know that God made you in his image, vesting you with glory and honor, and he loves you because he's for you, because he's with you, because he's the Lord and God of the universe. And yet, and yet, this psalm doesn't work. Actually, this psalm jars. Psalm 8 is an offensive song to us because our experience of life is not Psalm 8. 
wherever we look, we don't see the universe under our control. We don't see the world bearing the glory of God and the majesty of God silencing the avenger. In fact, wherever we look, the creation is out of control and it seems like the enemy, the avenger, is defeating the people of God. There are natural disasters in places like Pakistan with floods and heat waves, in Papua New Guinea, North Korea and tsunamis. There's international conflicts. There have been over 250 wars since the Second World War. There is, there is disease from COVID to Ebola to cancer to sepsis to polio. This is a problem psalm. It's almost nostalgic. It's like we're talking about a world that is no longer ours. Uh, or, or is it that we're in denial, singing a song uh, about God's glory and our rule, but actually we all know this isn't true. We, we can't even rule ourselves, let alone God's creation. And therefore the clue to this song is to realize who the singer is, which is David's, God's king. The singer is the Messiah, David's the anointed. And as he sings this song about God's strength being revealed and ruling the world completely and defeating the avenger, David, without realizing it, is really singing the song on behalf of another king who will come to be the king of Psalm 8, the man of Psalm 8. And that's why for the sharp observers amongst us, if you look at point two, you'll see the word the in brackets, because whilst this is about man, Psalm 8 is really about the man. It's the Lord's majestic strength re revealed through not so much man, but the man, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Genesis 3.15, God made a promise that one day, one day, seed would come, a, a man would come to defeat Satan and restore the rule of God. And in Hebrews 2 that Laura just read for us, we discover that he's come. Psalm 8 is quoted, you made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, you've put everything under his feet, you've put everything into subjection to him, yet... At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, Jesus. Jesus is the perfect Adam. Jesus is the perfect man. Jesus, through his perfect life and saving death, defeats Satan and then brings the whole cosmos under his control. And in the Gospels, you see a snapshot of that as he walks on the water and calms the storm as he, as he defeats Satan and heals sickness and reverses death. And as we come to this Jesus and put our faith in him, as we're included into his rescue, the victory that he wins at Calvary and in his resurrection becomes our victory, which is why we can then take the brackets off because the Lord's majestic strength is now revealed through man, us, through our trust in the man, Jesus Christ, at the cross. In fact, 
like a jigsaw. Let's put point one and two together and both speak of Christ. The Lord's majestic strength revealed through the weakest because this Jesus goes to the cross in humiliation and shame. And it is at the weakest place on the cross of Calvary that the majesty of God silencing the enemy and avenging the enemy is revealed. At the cross, in weakness and shame, the Lord's majestic strength is revealed through weakness. And it is in this man that the Lord's majestic strength is revealed as humanity is now brought back to Genesis 1 because we await the new world, the new creation, where everything will be under the Lord Jesus forever in perfection. The Lord's strength revealed in weakness, the Lord's strength revealed through the man. And as I finish, let me just say this. We may feel weak in our evangelism, as Tim was saying earlier on, but actually in our weakness as we proclaim the gospel this gospel is the very power of God in our weakness as we live and speak for Christ through this gospel. A new humanity is being created. And through the gospel, the kingdom of God is advancing. So we stand in Christ. We speak for Christ because the Lord's majestic strength is revealed in weakness and the Lord's majestic strength is revealed through Jesus Christ in his saving death. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for the great good news of the gospel, that even out of the mouths of infants, in weakness, you have ordained strength. Thank you that though we feel weak, in you we are strong. And we pray that you would keep us as your people as we praise you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, your kingdom has been established and the enemy, Satan, defeated forever. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.